Hello! And welcome to the Bond King episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week and your guide to the book of the month, Mary Childs' Bond King. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello, hello. And we are here with the woman herself, the one and only Mary Childs. Welcome, Mary. Hi, thank you for having me. You have finally birthed this book after many, (laughs) many years. It is a fantastic book. You have written all about Pimco and Bill Gross, and we're going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about Crimes from Grimes and other kind of white-collar criminals. We are going to talk about Midtown Manhattan commercial real estate. We have a Slate Plus segment. If you are on the fence about whether or not to be a Slate Plus member, this could be a good time to pull the trigger, subscribe to Slate Plus, because you get to learn all all of the juicy backstory about how this book came together. It's pretty juicy. It's all coming up on Slate Money. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So, Mary Charles, I have to say it has been a long time since I devoured a book as just assiduously as this. I opened it up and I couldn't. It's one of those dry nonfiction books about a bond fund manager. And like, it's one of those books which for most people, how could you even want to pick it up? But like, what, once I got into it, I was completely gripped and i love it and congratulations and well done so i start off with that thank you i run into that a lot people are like i should read this why and i've forgotten the i don't know how to pitch so i'm like it's really good is why i don't (laughs) bonds are important (laughs) but i i will say that i am like the absolute sweet spot of the target audience for this book because i am a complete pimco nerd and i even make a couple of cameo appearances but i have been obsessed with pimco for 20 years now and this really helped me to understand a lot of what um i was observing and i think we should start really with this whole question of why is pimco so important why is pimco so interesting and What you did in this book, which I never realized, is you basically said it's because Bill Gross, more or less single-handedly, invented active bond funds, which is kind of mind-blowing. And like we have all of these incredible stories about once he's successful and once he's a billionaire and all of his crazy and his things. But like the guy invented active bond funds and what how much money is in active bond funds today like it must be over 10 trillion dollars i don't know the figure but it's yeah it's a lot <laughs> it's such an inherent part of the entire financial universe that it's almost i can't even like get my mind around a world where it didn't exist but can you tell us a little bit about like what is an active bond fund and why was it such a good idea 
Yeah. So the idea here is that like it's it is almost unfathomable to us today. But it, when Bill Gross started his career, bonds were not traded. You just kept them and you clipped your little coupon. You know, you sent your physical coupon in for an interest payment, but you didn't really do much more than that. And when Bill started his career, inflation was really high. So the value of those bonds just sitting in the vault, those were getting eroded and they were just kind of losing value by sitting there. So there was this really compelling argument by Bill and some of his cohort that it made a lot of sense to try to sell those bonds. Maybe somebody wants to buy those at a discount and I'm free to go buy a new better bond. You can think about this as, you know, all of a sudden it becomes like the stock market and you can pursue price appreciation, which was... Again, it's just mind-boggling, but a radical concept at the time. And then, you know, you combine the regular old interest payment stuff and the regular old getting your money back at the end plus price appreciation, and that is total return. In other words, what we have is the thing that governs investing in every other area of the investing world, which is buy low, sell high, never existed in bonds before Bell Gross came along. It was buy at par buy at 100 when the bond is issued, and then have all of the coupons and principal get paid back to you. And then as you're getting the coupons and the principal, just reinvent them in, reinvest that money in new bonds at issue at par and hold to maturity. Which in the aggregate, if you look at the entire world of bond issuers and bond investors, that is still what happens. Like the bond investors will trade the bonds between them. But in aggregate, that's what happens is the issuers issue the bonds and then they pay them off at maturity. So what Bill Gross did was he he added a layer of basically zero-sum game to this. He said, by trading the bonds and getting in and out of the market and trying to buy low, sell high, I am going to be able to get extra, extra excess returns, total returns, and someone else is going to like lose money compared to if they just did a buy and hold strategy. So who who were the chumps? Who were the people who lost money? I know it's confusing, right? It's like why would you buy the bond that's just sitting there losing value? But you know, if you're selling it, there's always a price, right? There's a there's a way for everyone to be happy, and like maybe they have different priorities. Maybe they're like, I don't feel like messing around with new bonds. I'm tired. You know, I don't know what their problem is, but maybe they have a shorter time horizon and they want a bond that's going to mature in seven instead of ten. Or maybe that you know there are a lot of different different ways that this would work, but the market always finds the price, right? So the idea would be that you would just sell it where the next person's going to be happy. Or happy enough. How did Bill Gross's innovation, how did it line up with what was happening with mortgage securities? So they were also enormous and early in mortgages. And there's this story that I get really hung up on that is impossible to explain in brief. So I'm going to not do it here. But it's extreme, it's like extremely complicated trade on a mortgage future, like one of the first mortgage futures. And Basically, that was like this moment when PIMCO puts themselves on the map as being scary smart and being this like force to be reckoned with in trading that you're not going to know that they ripped your face off until four months later when you're like, whoa, what did... So yeah, the the innovation there, I mean, mortgage-backed securities are, are more complicated and do intimidate people. And also the market tends to misprice things or can misprice things pretty easily in that market because of, you know, negative convexity and the kind of quirks of the product. But PIMCO was just comfortable. They just like wanted to, they just were early to it and realized that other people were mispricing things and profited from that mispricing for decades. And and that yeah, that's a great part of the book and well done with that in the book. And I'm not going to try and explain it either, but there is this wonderful scene where like these PIMCO executives are literally walking into 
bank offices in Chicago saying like, hand over your cheapest delivered bonds. And they're like, we don't have enough of them. You're just going to have to have the more valuable bonds instead. And the, the yeah. BIMCO people are doing little happy dance and they're saying, we've got our extra 25 basis points in alpha. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, that yielded $70 million, this enormous and extremely difficult trade. And they're like, I promise you it was a lot of money at the time. It was a lot of money. <laughs> but the, the, the one that really jumped out at me and the place where it wasn't a zero-sum game and they really did generate alpha was something which I'd totally forgotten from 2008 where they built up a blocking percentage in a GMAC bond, which we need to sort of very briefly explain. The GMAC um, was like the financing arm of General Motors and wanted to restructure its debts. And PIMCO by 2008 was this massive multi-trillion dollar bond giant. And what generally happens in the bond world is that you have, when there's a big bond restructuring, the big bond giants like BlackRock and PIMCO, they go along and do the restructuring. And what they do is they need to fight the the, the hedge funds and the super aggressive holders who are like, no, I want to hold out for par. And, and they you know wind up maybe getting paid off or something like that. In this case, it was PIMCO, like the big lumbering PIMCO, who was like, we are not going to let you restructure the bonds. You're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And if you're not going to declare bankruptcy, we want you to pay us 100 cents on the dollar. And they basically played this game of chicken with the U.S. government, which had taken over the car companies at the time. And the U.S. government blinked. And I was like, holy fuck. Yeah. Like, PIMCO <laughs> is not meant to behave like that. Yeah. Like, they're not, they're acting basically, like, when you're describing these, like, normal bond swaps and restructurings and, you know, compromises between different stakeholders, like, this is normal in the world of distressed debt investing, you know, when you have these vicious hedge funds stabbing each other and private equity funds, and they're all, like, it's just a bloodbath, and it's, like, you know, kind of fun to write about. All that is not supposed to happen in mutual funds with the U.S. government. Like, that is radical. They were just, like, oh, did you need 75% agreement? And they're like, right, they're just the person that would make it over that threshold of 75, that would tip the US government over the 75% threshold that they were, you know, had had delineated for this swap. And Pimco's like, oh, unfortunately, that's just not going to work for us. We're just not, mm. I'm sorry. If I misled you earlier and said that it was okay, I was, I'm so sorry for that misunderstanding. It's not okay. And they just, you're right. They play chicken and they win. It's insane. Can you explain a little bit more? of that for for the listeners not for me <laughs> definitely for me no so basically they needed to gmac needed to raise money you know the government was saying that you need this like find this like a capital infusion and you need to convert to a uh, bank holding company um and to, and the path to do that was to raise money which meant that they needed to get bondholders to convince enough bondholders to swap their bonds for equity and for that they needed 75% of those bondholders to agree and again this is normal in like restructurings and corporate restructurings and distressed debt investing. Um, and this can get like super gnarly. But again, this usually doesn't happen when everyone's like at the table trying to come to an agreement in a crisis, whatever. So PIMCO owned a very large chunk of those bonds and GMAC was offering 60 cents on the dollar. And PIMCO's like, 60, that seems low to me. I don't, I'm just doing the math and that's less than a hundred do you mind? <laughs> like, and just said no. And they previously had, you know, been making sympathetic noises. So I think GMAC and, and you know, everyone trying to get this deal done, they thought that they had PIMCO on side and they just didn't. So eventually the government just gave up and said, 
okay, you can convert to a bank holding company anyway. And, you know, PIMCO got its money. And that was one of Bill Gross's, like, ingenious things that he did was sort of front run the federal government during the crisis, right? Yeah, exactly. They called it, um, he wrote an investment outlook that was, like, public um, that said, shake hands with the government. Yeah, they were not at all, like, this was very out in the open, very, like, they were saying, you should do it too. You know, just figure out what the government's going to buy and buy it, but get there first. So, I mean, if you want to think about it as like levying a tax on the U.S. government just by front running, yeah, no, that wouldn't be wrong. Is that bad? It's a good question. I mean, it's savvy. It's like, it's so hard to kind of make a moral judgment about these things where I was talking to somebody yesterday about how like, you know, in the complicated Ginny Mae thing, it's like the the fundamental premise of the trade was that there was a flaw in the contract, but there's no mechanism to say, excuse me, you have a, a bit of a problem in your contract. I just want to point out that your contract's not going to work. The only way to do that in financial, I mean, I guess you could call them and say that, but the real way to to show that there's a flaw in a contract is to break it, is to do what PIMCO did and just exploit the bejesus out of the flaw to great profit. So yeah, I don't know. It seems a little, I don't think I would have the stomach for it. But in the crisis, PIMCO was kind of inflating the value of the assets that the federal government would then buy, which I mean, when I say it out loud, I'm like, that seems wrong. That definitely seems wrong. But I mean, maybe they were making a better market for things and the federal government ultimately made money on that stuff, right? And it's proven to be like the strategy because in the past in 2020 that like we just, buy bonds now. The federal government just buys corporate debt now. It's like the thing to do. And that's in part because of Bill Gross. What? Well, I mean, the I think I cat? think one of the things that happened is that, you know, in in the sort of pantheon of great financiers, when I was coming up as a young, you know, green journalist, everyone would think about George Soros breaking the Bank of England, right? And there was this big fight between George Soros and the Bank of England in 1989, and then eventually George Soros won, and the Bank of England had to devalue the pound, and George Soros made his first billion, and everyone's like, wow, you know, a hedge fund can beat a central bank, right? And that was kind of, in everyone's mind, is the model for, like, how to make huge amounts of money in financial markets, right? Then... PIMCO comes along with the exact opposite, which is don't fight the Fed, which is just work out what the Fed is going to do and then just add all of your firepower to whatever their firepower is and work with them, but just get there first. And that is, and you can make just as much money that way without being antagonistic at all. Mm-hmm. Right. They get there first. They buy the stuff that they know the federal government is going to want to buy. And so then yeah. the federal government has to pay more for the stuff. They're leeches, basically. And the <laughs> returns you get, and this is the thing about bonds, the returns you get doing that. And when Bill Gross is a legendary bond investor, and when you know bond investors talk about like their, their greatest hits, as Mary says, they're tiny. They're measured in basis points, right? Like George Soros with his bet on the pound could make, you know, I don't know, 600% or something in the space of a week because he could lever up and make this huge bet. You could never do that by in a, with the don't fight the Fed strategy, right? With the don't fight the Fed strategy, you get an extra, you know, five basis points. But if you outperform the market by five basis points, you are God. 
Yeah. And you've actually hit on what I think is the real genius here. Like, yeah, it was a great trade. But throughout the crisis, they were doing a much more conservative strategy. Like a lot of people saw the crisis coming, right? You know, you have John Pauls and Michael Burry. We all know these like bold-faced names. But basically, like, if you think about these these people that we think of as heroes who saw the financial crisis coming and traded it well, so many of those trades were incredibly risky, right? They structured them in such a way that if the timing had been off by like a minute, they would have been wiped out or where their investors would have. And if you think about how PIMCO did it, they were way more conservative, right? And you see them ramping down on risk going into the crisis and then reaping the rewards of that, being able to buy when everyone else is panicking. And that actually, like... So they didn't have this like enormous lump of performance and then nothing like some of the other people who traded, who saw the crisis and traded it. You know, like I don't think that John Paulson has necessarily covered himself in glory in the intervening years since the crisis. Right. And there's like a risk management thing that worked well for them. But it's what you're saying. It's this like it, 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 you can't just like swing for the fences with this government slipstream strategy. You have to kind of just chug along and and zoop up those basis points and just be consistent. And yeah, I think it worked really well, but it was that consistency. So tell us a little bit about like, and this actually is most of the book, to be honest, is it, not like, you know, how, how, how was Bill Gross smart? It was more, how was Bill Gross stupid? And it's the point, it's <laughs> the point at which he like, he becomes a billionaire. He gets into his like late sixties, early seventies. He's in charge of this big organization that he has no particular desire to run. And he starts believing his own press clippings and saying and calling himself secretariat. He's like, I am the greatest and you guys are nothing. To be fair, I think he did believe himself the greatest pretty much throughout, to some extent, at least. Like he, I, One thing that I really kind of admire is that in the 70s and 80s, his posture was kind of similar and it was basically unearned at that time, you know, where he was like, I'm amazing at this. And you're like, at what, at what's going on? I'm sorry. Like everyone else, it just hasn't happened yet, but he believes in it so hard. So that's like, you know, would that we all could have that kind of confidence. (laughs) But yeah, there's this, this moment in 2011 where he makes the bad treasury call. And then, you know, again, in 2013 in the taper tantrum, it just, you know, he was, he kind of lost his footing and, and never really regained it. And at a place like PIMCO, I mean, throughout finance, of course, but also especially at a place like PIMCO, that just kind of undermines your entire credibility and like ability to, I don't know, exist and talk to other people in the, <laughs> like, if you're in an investment committee meeting and you have bad performance, no one's going to listen to you and they might be really mean to you. Like, that's the precedent that Bill himself had set. I didn't get the sense that it was his trading misstep so much that doomed him at PIMCO, but his personality and his terrible interpersonal social skills and management that ultimately doomed him, his erratic behavior, his like very much his weirdness. And I guess it's true that he was, you know, very much full of himself and believed his press clippings, like you say, but at the same time, he comes across as a very insecure person, which drives his like his terrible management skills, which again is what brought him down, I think, which I find just totally fascinating because the place, it's not like it was this well-managed, friendly place to begin with. Like you have that anecdote about one of the bills. There's a lot of bills in the There's book. There's so it's many bills. bills. So sorry. Oh my yeah. god! I was gonna um, make trading cards where they cut his tie because they don't like his tie and stuff. Like, and he, yeah. everyone's always leaving all like twisted and like embittered. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible place. And even in that culture, he is too much for them. It's hard for me to like get around it. I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't money that like 
was his downfall? I mean, maybe a little, but it, it seemed like it was his bad personality. Yeah, those things interact though, right? Like if you're a horrible asshole, but your performance is good, you're still on top. You're in charge. Like that's fine. Everyone's going to be like, well, that guy knows what he's doing. So I think I think you're you're not wrong at all. Like I do think you're right that it's the the interpersonal stuff that ended up being his downfall. But I think it's it would have been a very different. It would have played out super differently if he had had performance solid that whole time. You know, and it's funny because people are like, oh, these are only two bad years, you know, in a bajillion year career. And that's true. But like, I don't know. I think we can understand that. Like, we're only as good as our last story, right? It's like a five minute memory. That's how we interact. I think that's like the basis. For, that's like our currency among each other. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to have a Slate Plus segment about the story behind this book, because this was a book with a long and fascinating uh, gestation. So we're going to talk more about the book in Slate Plus, but there is actually no news much. this week. So um, let's talk about Midtown Manhattan. Emily, what's happening to Midtown Manhattan? Is there anything happening? Is it just a ghost town still? Well, it's a ghost town um, because office occupancy rates are like in the 30% because people don't want to go work in offices in Midtown, like a uh, duh. The journal had a very good piece about the fact that Midtown New York City offices are pretty empty, but Manhattan real estate residential is doing gangbusters. So the question is... Are people never going to go back to these offices? And if so, what is actually going to happen in Midtown? Because it's not just the offices that are affected. Obviously, it's the small businesses that surround them that serve all the office workers who aren't there anymore that serve them sandwiches and coffee and chicken wings after work and all that stuff. Like, what's going to happen? And this isn't why are we talking about New York City? Um, because apparently, and I didn't know this, but it's said in the piece, Manhattan is home to nearly 11% of all the office inventory in the country, which is pretty crazy. But what's happening in Manhattan offices is happening in big cities around the country, like even in, in Texas, where you'd think no one cares about anything and they're all back like coughing in each other's faces. Um, offices are like 40% full like people aren't going back so that could mean there's like a big massive restructuring of everything about to happen i don't know what do you guys think so my my take on this is this is good and my reason for saying this is that midtown office prices have been way too high for way too long 
like your standard midtown office if it's reasonably nice can easily go for more than a hundred dollars per square foot per year which is a crazy amount of money to spend for office space and it prices out a massive number of companies who would quite like to be in the middle of everything if companies find themselves able to downsize and have less space because fewer people at any given time are in their offices that opens up a bunch of space for other companies to be able to come in at maybe lower prices and we get a much more diverse set of companies working out of those uh, Manhattan offices. I think what we're really doing here is we're just waiting for the price mechanism to adjust. Offices work on very, very long-term leases and so you're going to have a bunch of empty offices for as long as those leases are in place because the landlords have no incentive to renegotiate the leases right now. They're just going to say, well, keep on paying me the, the, the rents that you agreed to pay back in 2018 or 2017 or whenever you signed that lease. Um, but eventually, as as those leases come up for renewal, we're going to find a bunch of downsizing and or even before then we're going to see like sublets you know companies just consolidating into fewer floors and saying we have some spare floors which we are leasing but we don't need anymore so we're going to you know sublet them as a loss to someone else and right now it's bad right now you have low occupancy but i think the market will will solve that and eventually you'll have the same amount of occupancy as you had before but just with a broader range of companies no more need for we work basically well, I mean, I think WeWork still has, still has a role to play. But yeah, I mean, it will be easier for small companies to find somewhere to lease, I think. Which is good, right? I guess. I mean, it's sort of interesting because um, they quoted Richard Florida in the piece and he said something. He compared what's happening now with offices to kind of like what happened would happen with factories and manufacturing, you know, in like the late 20th century, which is a weird thing to say because I lived the late 20th century, but it feels super like, makes it sound so long ago. Anyway, cities adjusted to that pretty well, like the the decline, at least New York City did, right? Like Soho lofts, artists, da-da-da-da-da. But it was a big disruption and dislocation. And I feel like, will companies take up the office space? Like Felix says, like probably Felix is usually right about a lot of things, but, <laughs> but who... Who knows? Like, it could be, like, I don't know, more disruptive, more dislocating, right? Well, I mean, yeah, one of one of the things that people have been talking about a lot is this idea of Midtown Manhattan in particular is way too over-indexed on commercial, and mm-hmm, it needs mm-hmm. a better mix of residential and commercial. And they compare it to what happened in Lower Manhattan, in the financial district after 9-11, when a huge number of office buildings were converted to residential. That, you know, would be great in principle, except for it doesn't work. The floor plates are too big. It's very, very hard to convert a big office building to residential or even to hotels. They're made to be offices and they really can't be anything else. There was some great article I want to say in like New York Mag about in the aftermath of the financial crisis, like 09-ish, 10, where they were like, okay, how could we do this? Like you could put your shower stuff in the drawer okay, in your desk drawer and just like converting a literal office into an apartment. And they're like, and then you would shower. I'm not really sure how you would reconfigure the showers, but it would have to be communal. And then you could sleep in the... (laughs) 
But yeah, I mean, that gap between like everyone wants to live in New York, but no one wants to live in Midtown because Midtown is not hospitable. Um, This is not super relevant, but I was reading about the real estate from the Gilded Age. And did you know they raised all these would-be historic, gorgeous mansions for those dumb buildings that they now can't do anything with? I'm just saying we should all be in, you know, Mr. Vanderbilt's mahogany paneled office cutting deals instead of or living there in beautiful midtown Manhattan. But instead, we have these pencils. Yeah, that's what you might see. I mean, there are a lot of like empty office downtowns like around the country, like Rust Belt cities and stuff like they just never came back and they're kind of ghosty town. But after a while, things change. Maybe the office buildings do get raised like the beautiful old mansions and new stuff comes up, but it'll take a really long time to shake out, right? You know, you have to Think about, say, the J.P. Morgan headquarters, this amazing Natalie Dubois skyscraper, the tallest building in the world designed by a woman, is now a hole in the ground. And they dismantled the entire thing. It was a perfectly serviceable headquarters just to replace it with a slightly taller headquarters in the same place. <laughs> tragic, completely tragic. You know, especially especially in that part of Midtown, Midtown Manhattan, very close to, to Grand Central Terminal, like there is insane demand for office space still. The, the big tower that just went up right next door to Grand Central, one Vanderbilt, is completely sold out. It, it, I, it nosebleed rents, like super, super high, well over $100 a square foot. There's still demand for office space, as ever in Manhattan, but probably globally, the space there's the most demand for is the most high-end space. And what people are struggling to know what to do with is what do you do with like the B-tier office buildings? But what you do with them is is what the Kushners are doing with 666 Fifth Avenue, which is don't renew any leases. Let it just get emptier and emptier until such a point at which you can take it down and replace it with Class A office space. Real estate just moves incredibly slowly, and we have to be okay with that. I was thinking when Emily was talking about the kind of the all the small businesses that service that are that are there as you know to feed the coffees and and you know the the sandwiches and the w- chicken wings. You know, there was a, a person in the article that you cited that was talking about, oh, we opened this really swanky restaurant, and we're not trying to aim for those people who eat chicken wings. We're trying to be nice. We're trying to be fancy here. And it's like, no, I know. Of course you are. Because that's what's left, you know? Like, yeah. the, it's, it's this allegory for the hollowing out, you know, of of New York, where the, the middle, you know, I don't know about y'all, but I feel like 45%, no, 60% of my friends left New York, me included. I'm friends with myself. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like yourself, Mary. Thank you, I but do. But the oh, one thing right. I'll say about that is that is a Tishman Spire property. That is the world-famous Rockefeller Center. Right, so that's a little odd, but and, and it's beautiful. It's worth dwelling on just for a minute because Rockefeller Center, like the financial district post-9-11, is pre-war, right? Pre-war office buildings by their nature, tend to have much smaller floor plates and lend themselves more easily to adaptive reuse of various types. Maybe hotels, maybe residential, maybe like swanky bars, whatever. Like Rock Center has a lot of exposures, right? Wherever you are in Rock Center, you're never that far from a window. And so you can do imaginative things with Rock Center in the way that you can't with, say, you know, one of the, like the 
the News Corps headquarters on 6th Avenue across the street, you can't do anything with that except for just be a big bulky office. That's the only thing you can do with it. Yeah, I would not live in that building. I love the views, but... I guess what's interesting too, like you guys are talking about after 9-11, this happened. After the financial crisis, this happened. It's just a reminder that like we just went through one of those again, like one of those big disruptions where you can say after blah, 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 all the offices became blah, blah, blah. Like this is some big disruption thing and we don't quite know how it's going to play out, but we know something's up, right? I mean, things are weird. 30% occupancy is is pretty weird. It's, it's Maybe big. no one ever going back to the office every day again is like, whoa, what? Like that's what we were doing for a hundred years. But what one of the good things about this is, at least for me, is that no one's really losing money from this. Like basically, what you want, we've distributed the cost of this across hundreds and thousands of corporations who are in Manhattan and other cities, San Francisco, Dallas, wherever. They are all spending a bit too much on office space, given how many people are actually in the office. And yet, somehow, they're all making record profits, right? They're all actually doing fine. If that's the worst thing that happens is that, like, a bunch of companies wind up spending a bit more money on office space than they probably would want to, given how few few people are in the office, yeah, I'm not going to cry too much. It's like two cents off EBITDA. It's, it's okay. Like, okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I guess, the, yeah. the in, well, the shift from... People, more people working from home. We've talked about this before. Like they're not going to the office. Everyone's staying in their houses. Home prices are insane right now, going up crazy amounts. Because so. people need the extra space to work from home, right? right? Because yeah, think yeah, how yeah. many, you know, what what is it that you know if you have eighty square feet or something on average in the office, you're going to want like another chunk of square footage at home to make up for that. You see the census numbers. New York lost people. New York metropolitan area lost 350,000 people or something. But the New York metropolitan area is over 20 million people. So that is still less than 2%. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Let's talk about white-collar crime. Mary, you're the, you're the storyteller from NPR's amazing finance blog. So... It's my uh, script, yeah. so I just... <laughs> As, because I feel like this is really a story that needs to be told. Tell us the story of Grimes. Okay, I'm going to try not to get myself in trouble here. So there used to be this blog called Hipster Runoff, and it was very important and influential. And if you go back and read it, it's like 
you just I, I went back and read some posts when this whole thing came out a couple days ago and it was just like getting immersed in like the post two thousand like I don't know, it was just very intense um of a of a cultural immersion experience. But highly recommend that. But it was basically um you know, just like blogging about the culture, right? Hipster life. We all talked about whether or not someone was a hipster at the time. I don't know if you remember. It was very polarizing, upsetting word. Um, and it was kind of a misogynist blog, you know? I'm shocked. You know, I know that looking back on our, our past cool things can be upsetting, and this is one of those. Um, but there was, you know, they kept posting about Grimes in unkind ways. And they were like, oh, you know, scalable manic pixie dream girl, blah, blah, just unkind things. That's like not even that mean of an example. And they published these pictures that Grimes didn't like. They were party photography, whatever pictures. And Grimes contacted a friend, apparently contacted a friend. And she said all this in a recent interview. So this is where why this is coming out now. She had a big Vanity Fair cover. And in the interview, she says, you know, I... um contacted a friend at like a video gaming company and had them just mess with the guy like the hipster runoff guy and do like a, a ddos attack and it sort of seems like what she did or had done was like actually much more severe and i want to say illegal than a ddos attack but not w- while also saying that a ddos attack is in itself severe and illegal what is it? It's just a hacking. Can we say it's a hacking? What what is, is that? The one where you like, overwhelm the server attack. with two? Yeah, many exactly. Kids? You you just you basically get a million bots to all try and download ping, ping, the ping, 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 ping. website at the same time, and the website crashes. And it's called it's but called this was a DDoS attack. And yeah, and that's what she says she did. And that if she just did that would have been clearly illegal and criminal and. If you look into the facts of what happened to Hipster Runoff at exactly that time, it looks like what happened to it was worse than just a DDoS attack. Yeah, it seems as though there was like interference with the archive and the site ended up just stopping. That was the end of Hipster Runoff, which, yeah, and it was this like big influential website at the time. So, you know, everyone was like, oh, what happened to Hipster Runoff? It was like a thing. And then... Just now we've heard that. And there was like maybe some low grade blackmail in there where she was like, take the story down. And if you don't take it down, da, da, da. And none of this, you know, this is all kind of coming out now in little bits and pieces. But it sounds like she was telling this like, she was like, yeah, I got canceled before canceling was a thing, you know, before our woke era. And the way she's characterizing it, it sounds like this like funny, cute, manic pixie thing that she did. And it's like, babe, those are crimes, I think. Get it? Crimes from Grimes. For the old the olds listening, can we say clearly that Grimes is a musician, pop star, musician who is artist who I only know because she like went out with Elon Musk. She, she yeah. she's the mother of two of Elon Musk's children. She is now dating Chelsea Manning, apparently, which is um, which is a whole thing. Very different sure they, from Elon. Do they talk about computer hacking in bed at night? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Uh, definitely, oh, yeah, definitely. Interesting. A lot it of overlapping in circle yeah. that way. So the the reason we're talking about this, honestly, is because a lot of the time when we talk about white collar crime on this sh- show, what we are talking about is financial stuff. We're talking about insider trading or financial fraud or that kind of stuff, and we don't often talk about other kinds of like nonviolent white collar crime, like hacking an opponent's website or email. 
Uh, one thing this reminded me of was another person who decided that it was a good idea to suddenly get like really honest about past criminal behavior, which was um, this guy, James Altucher, who was later famous for being like a Bitcoin shill, you know, was earlier f- famous for having a confessional blog. And one of the things he did on his confessional blog was commit to a bunch of crimes that he had committed about hacking into his competitors' emails and like screwing up their business that way. Equally criminal and yet, there seems to be this thing on the internet that you can just say, "Oh yeah, I did, cr- I did crimes. It's fine." Um, like, Lol. and then yeah, we are now in this era okay. where we had a president of the United States who happily came out and just admitted to committing crimes on a regular basis, and everyone's like, "Wait, you just said that, you know, in an interview with Lester Holt, and now, now, uh, you know, are we going to prosecute you?" And the answer is, "No, we're not." You know, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan prosecutor has now made this decision basically to not prosecute the crimes of donald trump the people in charge of the investigation have resigned saying like he committed crimes and you shouldn't be able to get away with that but it does seem that for nearly all of these crimes even if you are very open about the fact that you committed the crimes if you are someone like donald trump or james altucher or grimes you can just come out and say oh yeah i did crimes and no one is going to prosecute you and there is never any accountability for this yeah, it's yeah. confusing. So I guess the lesson is if you if you just confess in a funny, cute way, that's like it's the opposite. You know, everyone's like, oh, don't comment. You know, Miranda writes. No, the galaxy brain <laughs> answer is to just blog it. And right, that like, actually it doesn't whitewashes. Work. It doesn't work for like violent crime, right? You can't say, ha ha, yeah, there was this one time where I stabbed a guy. You know, like, no, you will get arrested. It doesn't mm-hmm. work for poor people. <laughs> It works I think for it might be a class and race issue people. here. It works for famous people. It works for wealthy people, and it always has. White collar crime is like people are empathetic to your white to the white collar crime typically, unless it goes just really haywire, like Madoff or something, and, and then other rich people lose money. A lot of them, then there's accountability. But like, there's a lot of empathy around white collar crime. Like, if no one gets hurt, in a way that there's not. Because there, there's kinds of there's crime that poor people do that really doesn't hurt anyone that people get incensed about like people are freaking out right now because of shoplifting or something and like there's all this hysteria like New York is like the 70s now because people are doing crime and stuff like that there's a lot of like nonviolent poor people crime that people freak out about jumping but they never freak styles, out about like right yeah jumping turnstiles stuff like that there's so much citizen I don't know like cop cosplay where you're like you don't need to police this you can you can stand down. <laughs> Let's have a numbers round. I feel like it's time. Do I have? I, I, yeah, I, I I can't remember the last time I went first on the numbers round, so I'm going to go first this time. I'm going to do a number which I stole from Emily because Emily <laughs> has this awesome newsletter called Axios Markets, and so I'm going to be like, let's do the number that I learned from Emily. Although I did a little bit more homework on my own. Anyway, the number is 1.87 million dollars. I don't which, even know what that is. And I don't know what that is. $1.87 million is the amount of money that Scarlett Johansson got for selling her 53rd Street <laughs> apartment in New York, which... Midtown's back, baby. Which she, which she bought in 2008, 14 years ago, for... Mary, have a guess how much you bought it for. Midtown, 2008. What, what month in 2008 do you know? I don't know. That is the question. had we noticed that the global economy was melting down yet or not (laughs) i don't know 600 
She bought it in 2008 for 2.1 million. Shut. <laughs> Girl, what the hell, Scarlett? Okay, early 2008. Early. Okay, but wait, let me. But, <laughs> but Scarlett Johansson is. This is not the first time she has done this. Um, she That's bought a tragic. Tribeca. She bought a Tribeca duplex for 1.95 million in 2006 and sold it two years later for. 1.89 million which was a loss and max abelson our friend How wrote that up when he was at the observer and he said that is basically unheard of in a period when basically everything trebled in price you managed to lose money on her tribe what, what is she buying but wait this is my favorite them? one she bought strategy. a hollywood she bought this <laughs> yes. she bought this villa in the hollywood hills for seven million dollars in 2007 I'm oh i'm nervous and sold it in 2010 for four million. Seven million to four million <gasps> in three years. Wait, what is going on with this, this woman? This must be a tax. It's this a tax a strategy. Thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Gotta this be is something. a 1031 somehow. I don't understand losses. it. This is Scarlet like a call move. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like writing off her real estate losses this. against like <laughs> film income. It's all a tax. Yeah. It's all a tax load. Now I wish I I had really gone deeper one level. I should have done a whole item on this. I just you can still do it. You can still do it. You can steal this for for next week's Axios Markets and do a deep dive. You can have an entire newsletter devoted to how has Scarlett Johansson managed to do so many bad real estate transactions. Three is a trend. Yeah, like all you have to do is throw a dart and you make. I'm very confused and very confusing. Also, yeah. why was she? Why is she buy an apartment on Sutton Place? I feel like that's for really like old ladies. Like I don't yeah, understand like, that part. She yeah. I mean, the only people who buy in Sutton, Sutton Place are like UN diplomats and Tina Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Just wow! That who can beat that? Going first, I don't know, Mary. Yeah, can you beat pass. I don't. <laughs> All right, Mary's Mine's passing. Emily, one percent as fun. <laughs> <laughs> My number. Is, uh, it's also a real estate number. It's $535,000. The median home price in Boise, Idaho. Um, what? Ooh, nice. Wow. Considered Boise, bringing it back. The least affordable city in the country to live right now. If you look at the census um, map that they just released um, with the report about where people moved in the pandemic or whatever, Idaho is the greenest place the greenest state on the map. The, it seems like, and it we're not talking the about the color of the grass. Group. We're talking about no, the chloroplast. Big brown, actually, yeah, yeah. Like they use green to connote positive movement into the state, and Idaho is super crazy green, um, and no one can apparently afford to live there who's been living there because all these new, you know, obnoxious. Probably, no offense to anyone who lives in Idaho. Don't email me. Is is Boise a, a hipster town now, full of like? I think New so. York refugees. Subway tiled coffee I, shops. I truly, I really wish I was like a national reporter at some other publication where they would like send me. Some national publication has to send a reporter. Ask to Asia Idaho. to I send go? you to Should Idaho. She will, she will send you to Idaho if you ask her nicely. Do I it. will do that. But also Mary should go for pl- do a Planet Money Idaho app because I think it's yeah. quite a scene there. But right? I have to say, we did get a bunch of emails from listeners when we talked last week about where is the best place in America to live if you want to avoid future climate change. And a bunch of people said like Chicago and the northern bit of the country the in between the coasts. But Idaho, I think, I think Boise is, if you want to protect yourself from the ravages of future climate change, Boise is not a bad place to go. 
Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, a lot of people are going there. So you might have, Felix, just sent more people there, driving up home prices even more. So I don't know. Way to go. Sorry, all you Boiseans out there. Well, you Um, know, we have to send ScarJo there. We know how that'll go. She'll help lower that average. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, She's such a force. Okay, friends, my number is 0.2 percentage point. And that is the gap between the two-year yield and the 10-year yield. (gasps) Inverted yield curve. Wait, wait, which one? (laughs) Which one? Is it it inverted or is is it positive or is it negative? It's just (gasps) a little, it's just like a little flirting with inverted. It's like not sure. It's like, I don't know. know. Two tens of inverted. So um, Mary, in your perfect planet money explanatory voice, can you tell us what is an inverted yield curve? So in normal times, short dated bonds and notes are supposed to be are supposed to yield less than long dated because the more time you have in something the more risk there is that things could go wrong but an inverted yield curve in the treasury market is when that's upside down and basically you're saying i don't know what you know i think that there's more near-term volatility there's more risk that things are going to be that yields are going to be higher tomorrow in two years than there is in 10 years and this usually very often presages a recession. This is one of the great notorious indicators of a recession. And there's a lot of question about, you know, correlation, causation, yada, yada. Like, to what extent is this reliable? Um, it signaled, you know, the in, the yield curve inverted in 2019 and certainly was not saying, oh, my gosh, there's going to be a pandemic that catalyzes an enormous recession. So you have to detangle some of the noise there. But it is nonetheless one of the most reliable indicators, and it definitely says things are weird. So, which we knew to some extent. <laughs> really? Yeah. I know it's a little uh, yeah. weird out there. I, we we, we needed the yield curve to tell us that shit is going to be. You're welcome. Weird. That's what the bond market is saying. <laughs> Loud and clear, my friends. Mary Childs, thank you so much for coming on this show. We love you so thank much you. on this show and off I love the show. You. We, you're just an, an amazing, wonderful person. Oh, thank you. It's a literal honor to be here. I was trying really hard not to fangirl. Did I did I achieve it? We welcome it. Why, yeah, we why want all the fangirl. Okay, I love more, you. More, more fangirl, more better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm freaking out to be here. <laughs> come back, come back anytime. And yeah, we will uh we'll be back on Tuesday with Slate Money going to the movies. At some point we are going to be having Cardiff Garcia talking about victimless white-collar crime in office space. So that's going to be a fun one. Talk about basis points and a steady strategy. You know what I mean? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's the Superman 3 scheme for stealing pennies from everyone is a classic basis point Bill Gross strategy Absolute classic of the genre. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to the podcast and, yeah, send us an email, slatemoney at slate.com and buy the Bond King, which is for sale at your local independent bookstore right now. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.